what your word says about who Jesus is and how we are to respond to that. Amen. And sometimes those um, songwriters are ambitious in their comprehension of our or their uh, the way they feel about our vocal range, like, yeah, I think they can probably hit that note. Like, we're not so sure. <laughs> Turn to Hebrews, if you would, chapter 9. We're going to continue where we've been uh, in our study through the book of Hebrews. And um, grateful for the Bible study that we're having an opportunity to experience on Sundays. And uh, Jonathan is, is um, being used by God in that time. And a lot, there'll be, I told him there's overlap today in that lesson. But, you know, if I, if someone said, what's your ideal or goal, one would be to have every single person that's a part of our congregation connected in small group Bible study, because it's, it just helps you to uh, have a different experience in relationship to other people. So, you know, I would encourage you, if you're not currently in a small group, that there are so many opportunities, uh, just check one out, you know, the one that works well for your, your uh, life and schedule, and uh, that would be really good. Appreciate the information about the website. That's very helpful as well. We've got a few people that are going through some sickness, and so uh, let's continue to pray for Jerome Tyson. Jerome had surgery this week, and he's uh, hospitalized, and... I think Viola said give him a couple of days before you try to visit if you're going to see him. But uh, he's recovering from surgery. It apparently went well, and he's on his way. Remember Miss Deborah Swindler? She's uh, going to be uh, hopefully dismissed home on Tuesday. She's got an appointment on Monday to determine that. And if so, uh, we're going to try to do a meal train for her. So keep your ears open about that. It would be very helpful for her. She's got some uh, dietary restrictions. So we'll send you out some information if it turns out that she's able to go home on Tuesday. And also, Varney wasn't feeling well, so we miss him today. But we want to pray for him as we go to the Lord in prayer as well. And I'm probably leaving someone out. But let's just remember each other in, in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for who you are to us, your love and your blessings. And God, the uh, way you put us together in this community so that we uh, can care for each other. And I pray for those that are going through difficulty. I pray for Jerome and his recovery and for Miss Deborah and for Varney. And I pray for others that are part of our fellowship. And God, we just commit ourselves to you. Pray that we'll care for each other well. And I pray that you'll help us as we uh, try to connect with our community to love them and show them the love of Christ. And we pray that you'll help by your spirit today as we look at your word, God, that you'll use it so that it uh, helps us to to have a better uh, relationship with you, God, to experience the purpose that you've created us for. And we just pray that you'll help us by your spirit of truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Hebrews uh, chapter 9 is where we are, beginning with verse number 1. And there uh, the Bible says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant overlaid 
on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I think he says that because they just no longer existed at that time. So they had some idea because God had told Moses, but uh, they weren't available to them. They had gone off the scene at that time. So now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who perform the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come and the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. So to this point, he's given a history of the the biblical history of God's interaction with the people in their uh, the rituals and the law. And so uh, I'm not going to get into some of this in so much detail, but we, the, he's just telling us what happened through Moses with the people of God along their journey as they uh, were walking out that old covenant. And we, you know, we talked about the new covenant in the past week. So then he says, uh, Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there's no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to offer often since the foundation of the world, or excuse me, to suffer often 
since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Whew, that's a mouthful. All right. Well, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we've you, you know been over, seeing what God's purposes are in Hebrews. And, and, of course, a lot of what this passage covers, I talked about last week, including having the uh, diagram of the tabernacle so that we could see that symbolically God was showing them a way forward in his progress of salvation. And so in this passage today, I just want, I don't want to get into the details again because we have already in, in seeing the significance of those things and the purpose that God had. I'd rather look at the big picture here today as we, and you'd rather we did that too so that I don't spend an hour and a half looking at 28 verses in detail. But when we think about what the big picture is, what this passage is trying to say to us, I think the that it's when you, we get down to the end of the chapter, it summarizes for us what's you know essential here. And so, when people think about what it means to be a Christian, sometimes they they think that we're committed to pie in the sky by and by. You know, that's the way they talk about what it, uh, Christians believe. Our beliefs, our belief system. It's pie in the sky by and by. A, a lot of Pollyanna wishful thinking. Or unintellectual escapism. You know, sometimes that's the idea that people have about what Christians believe. They're like, it just pertains to what happens when you die. And I thought, um, you know, I posted this recently, but Barna Research indicated that Christian philanthropy accounted for 70% of all American philanthropy in 2022 at $300 billion of generosity. And Christians also outgave the U.S. government in uh, addressing global poverty. Poverty. So, you know, when people say, hey, Christians just care about the world to come, they don't care about this, this world. Well, that's not what the data says. The data says that Christians are engaged in the world around us. And that if you took away the... A benevolent heart of Christianity in a society like ours it, that many, many people would not be served and cared for. You know, so we talked about earlier how we, you know, our own giving. And, and of course, we give to meet needs of people that are around us in our own society. One thing that's interesting is Effingham County is one of the most affluent counties in Georgia. But there are still pockets of people around us who have needs and so we give to help meet those needs. So when people say, ah, oh, Christianity is just sky, uh, pie in the sky by and by, of course that doesn't align with reality. But when we think about what Christians care about, a tenet for us is that we believe that our life on earth will end, but that's not the end of life. We'll say, yeah, one day by and by, our life is going to end. That's what the scripture says. It is appointed to men once to die, and after this, judgment. So we'd say, yeah, we are going to die, and we do care about that. We care about what happens once our, our life here you know, comes to an end. 
The psalm uh, writer Moses, in this case, is the only psalm that we know was attributed to him. The 90th psalm talked about what it means to be a human. And I felt like Moses must have been having a bad day, you know, when he wrote this. It says, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, he says. And uh, this is so powerful. What Moses talks about here, he, he says, this is how it works out, right? You live 70 or 80 years. Sometimes people live longer than that. Frankie's mom lived to be 92. My dad died when he was 76. We don't know. You know how long we get on earth. We know that it's about 70 or 80 years. That's what Moses was saying. And and he talked about the nature of man in relationship to God. Sometimes we don't want to think about God in a punitive sense. You know, people want, want to view God the way that they see him, but... When you read the Bible, guess what? There is a punitive sense in the nature of God. There's judgment associated with God. God is the righteous judge. So people will say, I don't really want to think about that. Well, I'm sorry, you can't read the Bible and not see that God is a righteous judge. That people have flaws and that God will judge us in righteousness and that something has to happen so that redemption can occur. And that's really the whole point of what we see in this this passage. In Scripture, God challenges us to think about the brevity of life. How many times does the Scripture say that, you know, our life is like a vapor that appears for a very short time and passes away? You know, the older we get, the more true that becomes in our experience. Life begins to feel like a, a vapor. Of course, not when you're a teenager. You know, you think you're you know, made out of steel and you'll last forever. But the older you get, when your knees and back start to fail and all those things start to happen and your, your calendar starts to revolve around doctor's visits and, and stuff like that, then it becomes apparent to us that there's this issue of mortality to contend with. And the Bible says we need to think about the brevity of life and the purpose of life and the transition that happens at the end of our life, where do we go? What happens to us? And so the scripture here says you keep living and you encounter God. That's what happens. And so that's what I wanted to think about in this passage is, and what we can see in the big story that God was telling and giving us a lot of this detailed uh, information. So wise people think about how they may experience the good things to come because that's what the scripture says here. It says there are good things to come. But it it depends, and it depends on how we've related to Christ. So when we look at the scripture, it's divided, I I think, in the way that preachers usually will see things into three portions. And the first one is we see in the description of the tabernacle and and the worship that God gave to them in a process, the shadows of the good things to come. There's this history that we've been looking at in... Uh, how, and it, uh, it goes back and it deals with this the progress of a nation. And so people will often describe the Bible by talking about progressive revelation. 
and there is a progress to God's work in the world, and it's historic and embedded in the narrative of a country, of a, a nation of people in the ancient Near East. Sometimes people think of Christianity as a Western religion, but it's not. It's not a white person's religion. It's not a Western religion. God began the story that he was telling among people in the ancient Near East along the Mediterranean seaboard and in Africa and in Asia Minor. Those were the places where God, God's story, as we get it in the scripture, was being told and directed. So it's not new, it's old, ancient, and God was revealing himself to us through a people and their experiences. He took a man we talked about earlier today. Of course, he wasn't the first man. You know, the scripture says the first man was Adam and and Eve and their family. But down the way, he took a man called Abraham from a place called Ur of Chaldea. We're like, where is that? Mesopotamia. We're like, well, where is that? Mesopotamia, between the rivers is what it meant, but most people would say it was in northern Iraq. That's where he came from. Or Turkey. Somewhere in that part of the world is where Abraham is called by God. Just like we saw in our Bible study earlier today, he was raised among polytheists. We don't know if he was a polytheist or not. We know that there was a progress in his understanding of God because God was revealing himself to him and, and through that man, God birthed a nation to worship Yahweh, to worship the one true God. So whether he started among polytheists or not, he became a monotheist and a worshiper of Yahweh, the one true God. So that, that was the progress in the uh, story. And they came from, I, I think about like, there was no tabernacle or temple. That, you remember often what would happen in the lives of those people is that they would come to a place and erect a stone altar. And it was a reflection of the encounter or the experience that they had with God. We talked about Jacob and how uh, Jacob is at this place called Bethel. The house of God is what it meant. And that he had this vision of the heavens being opened and angels ascending and descending. And when he wakes up, he was like, I was you know, right here in the presence of God, and I didn't even know it. And often at at those situations, they would erect stone altars, or sometimes just stones, as a way of commemorating these encounters and experiences with God. But there wasn't a temple or a tabernacle. They were just the people of God, nomads. And then eventually God gives them this tent, the ornate tent, the tabernacle that we get this description of in the Bible. But... They went. They were. They were. Part of their process was stone altars and verbally transmitted narratives. They were an oral culture where stories were passed down. And Jonathan did an excellent job in our Bible study today of showing how the nearness of those human beings to one another and the transmission of the history that had occurred among them and how that they uh, had heard. They had experience firsthand to people like Noah who he and his family lived through the deluge, the flood. So we see how God began to tell a story through this uh, nation of people and how they went into captivity and how they were delivered out and you know we've covered a lot of that ground in, in the in the past. But 
through them, God was disclosing his purposes. You know, a lot of times in life we think we're trying to cobble it together. What does life mean? Is, is there a meaning? Well, God has been disclosing his purposes through a nation, through their history, and then ultimately we see through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's showing us his character. So when we get down into the details sometimes, like in reading this chapter, and we see the, the fine print of their experience in the tabernacle, it is God's self-revelation showing us things like we saw before. That, for example, that he's holy. We see his holiness. We see that uh, his nearness, too, because he invites us in, but he shows us the uh, parameters and the boundaries and the prerequisites. What did God say about the world that he made when he made it? You remember? He said it's what? Good. He pronounced it good. Then what? The last thing he says. Very good. This is a good world I've made. You know? But we know that it went very badly, right? It didn't take long. First generation of humans. The first set of humans. It was derailed. The Bible describes it in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, by saying, Through one man, sin entered the world, and by sin, death, and death spread to everyone, and that all have sinned. So the story gets convoluted at the very beginning, and, and humanity is marred. There's something wrong with the world, right? You don't talk to anybody that it, you could convince anybody something's wrong with the world. I don't know who you couldn't get to buy, buy into that. We live in families. We see the things that happen. I always think, you know, it's like I start out in the big world and we see how messed up it is. Then we come in closer into our family. But then when I get really close, I'm alone with me. And it doesn't take a lot to convince me that something's wrong with me. I know that better than I know all the rest of it. There's something wrong. The Bible says, here's what's wrong. It went badly. God gave us an order. And he said, the world is good, but there was also a way that it could go bad. And people chose rebellion. They chose to try to be God instead of living under God. And that's still the temptation. It's still the way people are wired out of the womb. The Bible says that's how people are wired. To say, you know... I'm the end of it all. I'm to be all the end all. And, and not to look outside themselves to the one true God. So the world was stained by that rebellion. It is stained by it. People became recipients of a fallen nature. Our connection to our creator was disrupted. Alienation ensued. That's what the Bible says is the condition of a person as they come into the world alienated from God. Alienation is the way we come into the world. What we grow up into until we have an encounter with God. The connection that people had with God was disrupted, the scripture says. And spiritual degradation became the constant. That's the story of the world that you live in degradation but God didn't abandon his creation he began a patient work it's a patient work when you read the Bible he didn't just instantly cause everything to be different we, we remember that the scripture says in the fullness of time God sent forth his son 
born under the law, born of a woman, born under the law. And, and you could spend a lot of time unpacking what the fullness of time meant. But God saw there was a perfect intersection for Christ to come, and that's when he came. But it was a patient work. All he had to work with, humanly speaking, were flawed representatives. When you read the Bible, one thing we notice is that it tells the truth about its characters. It doesn't show us some, you know, uh, airbrushed version of what people are like. When you read about these people in the Bible, they're all imperfect. They're all flawed. And that's who God's working with. And he treated them graciously. He gave them, when we read, uh, for example, Hebrews, we see a lot of the fact that there were systems that he gave them to guide and order their worship. Rituals and laws, ceremonies, liturgies, figures like Moses and others, leaders, and it was helpful, but it was incomplete. That's what Hebrews is showing us. It was helpful, but it was incomplete. What God was giving them were signposts, pointing them somewhere. So they were following these signposts. Hints wouldn't be a strong enough word for what uh, God was doing or accurate because it was stronger than that. It was clear about who he was and what his expectations were. Not that God can't be subtle. Sometimes we probably all wish God weren't so subtle. But But he was pointing them somewhere. And sometimes he was speaking powerfully and clearly through the prophets and, or poetically. Sometimes he was speaking through the prophets. Always plainly calling these people back to what? Goodness. Goodness. Where he said, ah, I'm looking at my world, this is a good world. Ah, it's very good. Gone bad. But all God was doing was continuing to call people back to goodness. And so there wasn't one person who was getting it right. When you read the book, the Psalms, that's what it says. Nobody was getting it right. Occasionally someone would show up like Joseph, the son of Jacob, who it's pretty hard to find a lot of bad things about Joseph in the Bible. But we do see that, like, basically he uh, was a tattletale. I don't know if, you know, probably being a tattletale is a sin, I guess. But we see Joseph wasn't a perfect person. I've said before his father favored him, gave him a, a coat of many colors, and he wore it, you know, around his brother's. Like when Joseph goes out to tattletale on his brothers, they see him a long way off, probably because like, well, we know for for sure he had on the coat of many colors that his father had given him because they put animal blood on it when they pretend that they've killed him and thrown him into a pit and sold him into slavery. But we see these characters. None of them are perfect. Some are pretty good, but not perfect. Samuel. When I read the Bible, he stands out as a stalwart, you know, example. If you wanted to find somebody really good in the Bible, it would be Samuel. But we know Samuel wasn't perfect. And you, and you continue to see people like that. King David, a man after God's own heart. Also who committed adultery and sent a man to his death unjustly. 
All these people, none of them perfect. All of them had cracks in their veneer when you got close up. Flies in the ointment. Close but not quite. In the, the story of the Bible, there are movements not sustained. We, we've talked about the history of the Old Testament, how that it cycles into you know, times where God's favor was on the people, but then they go into idolatry and disobedience and punishment, and then they come out, movements not sustained. A lot of futility, honestly, when you read this story. That's what you see. Sin and dysfunction, that was the rule. And then the, the second part of this, I'm waving at the booth, but I've got the thing today. So. Reformation of the good things to come, verses 11 through, 12, uh, 11 through 12. I didn't correct that myself. Verses 11 through 22, I'm sorry. Reformation, because uh, when you look at the scripture, that's what it says. It's that in verse 9, it says, the, all these things, the ceremonies, the tabernacle, could never make the purpose the worship are perfect in regard to conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. That's Christ. It's his coming. So this is the hinge in this part of Hebrews and what it shows us. The good that God intended, which was just out of reach, God brought himself. He was goodness personified. When we think about Jesus, what does it say about him? What did the people that knew him say? That he was without sin. That he was the only perfect person. God brought goodness in his humanity. He broke through. Earth received her king. That's what we sing at Christmas. His arrival put an end to the shadowy suggestions of goodness and he became goodness for us. How was God going to get us back to that? The intent that he had, the world that he made. How was he going to bring goodness to us? Well, he brought it in himself, in his humanity. Jesus rubbed people the wrong way sometimes when he was on earth. This perfect God living among us. He probably rubbed his siblings the wrong way. But he rubbed the people around him the wrong way by suggesting that he was God and suggesting that he was the only way to God. It didn't sit well with some of the people, many of them, that he was around in the first century in his earthly life. And a key to uh, uh, being a part of the good things to come is acknowledging that your self-effort is not the way. God isn't going to lower his standards for anyone. We just sang the song, what? Holy, holy, holy. That's how God describes himself. That's the song they sing around the throne. Holy, holy, holy. And God isn't going to let uh, lower his standards for any person. Self-salvation does not work. You can't save yourself. You can't redeem yourself or deliver yourself. Self-salvation doesn't work. And it would nullify the need of the cross of Christ. If a person thinks, well, I, there's a series of things that I'm doing. In the end, they'll add up to something that God is satisfied with. Well, we have to explain the cross. What was the need of the, the cross of Christ? Why would God come and let himself be crucified and die a bloody death if you, what you and I could do 
in our own morality was good enough. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense, and it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are inadequate, and we can't save ourselves, and that our righteousnesses, the prophet Isaiah said, are like filthy rags is the way he put it. That's what self-effort looks like, especially in contrast to the sacrifice of the cross where Jesus died for us. All the religion in the world doesn't change the fact that on the inside something has gone wrong. That goodness got derailed. We sing this song or do sometimes at church. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what the writer points out in this uh, chapter. He says... All of those, the things like the tabernacle itself, they would offer the blood of an animal as a representative for the person. He says the problem was it couldn't cleanse the conscience. You're still guilty. It was a representation of what God was doing in making a substitute for us. But all of the ceremonial part of that pointed toward what Christ in himself completely did. He washes away our guiltiness. It talks about in verse 14, dead works. The uh, scripture says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Those are works that a person performs in the pursuit of, of life. If I can just do this stuff, it will give me life. But the Bible says those are the works of death. The work of life is faith in Christ alone and repentance. Acts chapter 17 verse 30 describes repentance by saying these times of ignorance God winked at but now commands everyone everywhere to repent. The Bible says God commands everyone everywhere to repent. And repent, repentance is the gift of an interrupted life. We don't think of our life being interrupted as a gift. We talked about Saul of Tarsus and the fact that he was, you know, a religious person on his way to persecute Christians when he was blinded by a light from heaven and God interrupted that man. And sometimes that's a gift from God. The gift of God is repentance that interrupts us and and disrupts us and, and shows us his goodness. God is interested in giving a, a person a turning point, and that's a, 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 the idea of crisis in Scripture. It's turning away from a self-led life and choosing to trust, trust the one who created us and knows better than you what's best for you. Trust in the Lord, the Bible says, in all your, uh, with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your path. So the Bible says sometimes we, you know, we're living these self-directed lives and you know, we think we know better than the one who created us and gave us life. And so repentance is following the signpost to Christ. That's what it is. It's turning away from our way and following those signposts to him. And then it's, we think about this passage and what it shows us, completion of the good things to come is the last part of it where we see Christ appearing in the presence of God for us and he's described as a mediator but the scripture says he 
now appears in the presence of God for us. And that's the language of him being mediator. Once for all in the passage uh, that we read describes the fact that what Jesus has done on our behalf is finished, it's complete, and never needs to be done again. The pathway of salvation was accomplished in the first or second century when Jesus Christ, or the third, 33rd uh, 33 AD when Christ died for us and it never needs to be repeated it's talking about a, a system that required consistent sacrifices but Christ was sacrificed once for all so when he says of, of himself it is finished he is referring to the salvation of humans that in his cross our salvation when his blood was poured out our Sins were washed clean, and we receive that by faith and believe him and follow him. So Christ has appeared, and we are in an era of grace. That's the time that you live in now. The Bible says, for by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God and not of works, so that no one can boast. And so Jesus brought the grace of God, the kindness and the mercy of God to us. Until the Bible says, like in the days of Noah, he closes the door. The time uh, of linear history comes to an end. And the scripture teaches that there's nothing to prevent Christ's return except for his patience and kindness. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 9 and following, it says, uh, that passage is interesting to me, that chapter, because it talks about scoffers. And if there's ever been a time when the world was full of scoffers, it is now. And the Bible says people will scoff and say, where's the promise of his return? Everything continues just like it did from the beginning of time. And he says, but this they're willfully ignorant of, that in the past, God did judge the world with the deluge. And he says it's not slackness that keeps God from judgment. It's compassion. It's mercy. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when we hear people scoff, the, the reality is God's compassion is what stays judgment. To give a person... The, the opportunity to be saved, to give people that opportunity. And so the, it's interesting in this passage, the word in uh, verse 27, it's appointed for men once to die, that's undeniable, and after this the judgment. The word for judgment is the word crisis. Crisis. Some... Uh, you know, we've joked before about the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding and how the father always says, give me a word, any word, and I'll show you the root of that word is Greek. And it's like this word, the word crisis in English came directly from the Greek language and it meant an intersection where hope was ahead or despair was in the opposite direction. And so judgment, what does God intend in it? He intends it to be a place where a hopeless person, a despairing person encounters hope and receives life, is given forgiveness. And, and 
So that's the appeal of this passage that we read today. The next time Jesus arrives, the Bible says it will be apart from the mission of dealing with sin. That's what it means in uh, verse 28 where it, uh, it says, To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. It means the next time he comes, his mission will not be to deal with the problem of sin. It has been dealt with. The next time he comes, it will be to accumulate to himself people on the basis of their response to the sacrifice that he made. That's what it means. So when the Bible talks about judgment and the crisis that it creates, it's really an appeal to people to respond to God's goodness now. In this world, an era of grace where it can be received as a free gift that God has made because of Christ's sacrifice. So the world to come isn't the only thing Christians think about, but it's an important thing we think about. I read this, uh, the average life expectancy in the U.S. is about 77.28 years uh, of age. This was two-year-old data. It may be a little slightly different than that, but you get the idea, right? Average life expectancy is about 78 years of age. In Hong Kong, where people live longer than anywhere on earth, they live to be about 82 years of age. You could move to Hong Kong if you wanted to, but it wouldn't solve anything, would it? I mean, not really, because the Scripture shows that we need to think about, like I said there, it may be morbid to think about death and judgment. I don't want to think about it every day, but you better think about it sometime. That's what the scripture is saying. You better think about it sometime. Because the good news is Jesus' rescue and pardon and his mercy and his forgiveness. The central belief of Christian teaching is the powerful meaning of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the anchoring reality. It's why now once a month again we do communion as a reminder. What does it say? When you do this, what? Remember me. Remember me. Bring to mind what I've done. This is the centerpiece of Christianity is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and how in that he became for us our sin offering, so that our conscience could be cleansed of our unforgiveness and our holiness and the goodness that God intended to tell in the human story could be restored to us so that we could... I'm not saying that Christians are always good. I'm saying that it puts us into the goodness and the purpose and the united uh, to be united with what God intended all along. There's no way to be there except for what Christ did and being connected and having the alienation done away with and having the rebellion accounted for except for what God, the only good human that ever lived, did on the behalf of all of the rest of us humans. His goodness, kindness, and love were fully displayed at Calvary where he died on a cross for us. And we're invited to come and receive this great destiny-altering gift. That's God's invitation. He says to us, come. 
So my question for us now is why not now? Why not come now? If the reality for you is you've never really thought about this idea of sin and judgment, alienation, and what, what life really is about, the Bible says, well, it's probably about something different than you've thought it was up until now. You thought it was about something completely different, and God says, no, it's about me and being in a relationship with me and understanding my will and my purpose and, and fleshing that out and experiencing the most important thing, forgiveness of our sin. To have the handwriting of offenses that was contrary to us, the Bible says, erased, eradicated. The potential has already been accomplished by Jesus, but we have to respond. And, and just say yes to the offer that he's made. And so we're going to have a song today during our time of commitment. And, you know, the thing that we always say is that, you know, it's a, this is an appeal that uh, we're making. You can, if, would you advance it? There you go. It, when we have this time of, uh, it's, it's, what is the appeal? The appeal is for you to surrender, to, for you to lay down your self-will for you to say yes to God. Sometimes it's about this uh, singular issue of forgiveness and salvation. Sometimes it's about other things. But God's intent for us all the time is that we would be surrendered and that we would you know, live our lives for him. As a, what does the scripture say? Uh, live in sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is pleasing to God. That's our worship uh, to God. But I want to pray for us today, and then as you've listened, if, there, if the biggest need for you today is to say yes to the offer that, of pardon and forgiveness and a new life that comes through Christ, then I'm, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to respond today publicly because that's how the Bible calls us. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The scripture says that Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father, which is in heaven. He says there's no such thing as a person who follows him that doesn't follow him publicly. And so this is a public call to follow Christ if you have not done so and you know that you need to. Just meet me up front and I'll pray with you today or talk to me right after and I'll pray with you then. But let's go to him in prayer. God, we thank you that the 